Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Jonathan Ziss from the Margolis Edelstein Law Firm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Jonathan joined the firm as a partner in 2005. His practice areas include commercial litigation, aviation litigation, and professional liability. He has lectured and authored on numerous topics and is also a member of DRI. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be a part of the program. Today's topic is on a defense verdict reached in a fatal airport injury, and Brendan Noonan will lead off today with our first question. Jonathan, please tell us a bit about this case. Certainly, I'm happy to do so, Brendan. This is a uh, death case that involved a adult male who was ticketed to travel on a Southwest Airlines flight from Philadelphia to Chicago's Midway Airport on a Sunday afternoon back in September of 2005. The uh, fellow lived about an hour from the airport, and little is known about his movements on the day of the incident uh, other than the following. We know that he spoke with his parents that morning. Uh, They found him to be in fine shape, good spirits, with nothing amiss. That was at around 12.30. We know that he arrived at the airport at about 2.22 in the afternoon because there happened to be a parking tag available on his person in the aftermath of the the accident that I'll mention uh, shortly. And we know that he spoke briefly with a Southwest Airlines customer service agent whom he ran into in a public corridor at the airport. At that point, he mentioned to this individual that he had decided not to fly that day and that he did not want to be charged an upcharge when he rebooked, uh, he was told that's fine, that he would not be charged any additional fee, and he received that individual's business card. He was next seen sometime later, staggering and visibly intoxicated, at which point a skycap approached him and, recognizing that he was staggering, placed him up against a wall and then walked away, presumably to get a wheelchair or other assistance for him. And at that point, uh, this individual took a few steps away from the wall, still, of course, in a staggering condition, and he fell. He struck his head on the hard terrazzo floor, and ultimately the injuries that flowed from that trauma took his life. The case was initiated against various dram shops, that is to say everyone with a liquor license at the airport, as well as Southwest Airlines, whose uh, flight he was scheduled to fly, and it was that airline's customer service agent who gave him her card, as well as Continental Airlines. It was in the vicinity of Continental's ticket counter that this fellow was seen staggering and fell. How did the jury selection process impact the verdict? That's an excellent question. Jury selection was, not surprisingly, seen as terribly important uh, in this case. The case tried in Philadelphia County State Court, and the issues that we were looking at in terms of jury selection were these, some of them somewhat unconventional. Our feeling was that the theme of personal responsibility was very important. That is to say, we have an individual who is clearly very intoxicated. As it happened, the evidence showed that his intoxication was multiple times the legal limit for intoxication. And the defendants were all businesses, large corporations, in fact. By the time of trial, it was just the two airlines who were defendants. So there was a David and Goliath consideration, not surprising for a corporate defendant, There was also the thought that people with a negative outlook on life may be inclined to side with or have particular empathy for 
an individual in the position of the plaintiff who was an otherwise upstanding citizen, but on this occasion was severely intoxicated, with recognizing that intoxication is fairly widespread from time to time in the adult community. Our concern was that folks who have a positive outlook and generally see life as a satisfying and happy experience would have a better balance in their ethical, moral, and legal sense and be able to receive the evidence in full, whereas people with a negative outlook may be more inclined to see this guy as uh, the plaintiff, that is, as having had a particularly bad day and not having really been given a chance by society. Admittedly, these are unscientific parameters that we were applying, but it was seen as important. And we also wanted folks with some employment, ideally management or supervisory experience, so that there would be some connectivity to the actions of the various airline employees who interacted with this fellow, again, from an empathic and a contextual uh, view so they'd be able to understand the pressures that these folks are under and that their supervisors are under. And as it happened, the luck of the draw, as they say, we were able to seat a jury of eight that, by and large, although not exclusively, conform to our profile. Now, Jonathan, can you elaborate a little bit on the dram shop issues that were involved in this case and how liable businesses might be in general with something like this? Yes, certainly. This case really has two dimensions to it, or had two dimensions, the first being a dram shop dimension. The individual fell because he was severely intoxicated, as well as, to give credit to the plaintiff's allegations, the fact that his gait was disturbed by the skycap. First and foremost, however, is the fact that he was severely intoxicated, a fact that could not be disputed at the time of trial. The case initially was framed out around the notion that at the time the plaintiff arrived at the airport, he was sober. And the general evidence supporting that relates back to the events earlier in the day that his parents saw him. He was fine. He had some cell phone calls during his drive to the airport, during which he appeared to be fine. He parked and was able to make his way into the airport. So the position that plaintiffs took is that he was sober when he arrived, and approximately 50 minutes later when he fell, he was, again, highly intoxicated. And therefore, he must have been drinking at the airport. And if he was drinking at the airport, the fair inference is that he was drinking at one of the licensed establishments. So the allegations were that in the absence of any actual evidence of this having taken place, by inference, the argument was that he arrived sober, that he went to one or more establishments, and at some point he became visibly intoxicated, at which point they continued to serve him, again, kind of working backwards from his extremely high blood alcohol content. So all of the dram shops in the vicinity of the accident were sued. The theory against the dram shop, again, under Pennsylvania law, is that if the patron is or becomes visibly intoxicated in a licensed establishment and is continued to be served, that the dram shop will be liable for any damages that are caused as a result of the intoxication. The dram shops, I should note, protested vehemently to the fact that they had been sued in the first place and the fact that they were not voluntarily dismissed in the absence of any evidence that this individual had, in fact, visited any of these establishments. There were no credit cards, no video surveillance, no eyewitness testimony linking him to any particular establishment at all. And motions for summary judgment were filed. The motions, however, were denied, and they were denied apparently on the grounds that, based on a very strong inferential case, that this individual not only became intoxicated, but became visibly intoxicated and continued to be served, given the timeline and his alcohol blood levels. 
so the dram shops under these circumstances were denied summary judgment to their dismay but that is how it shaped out and ultimately the dram shops defendants each one of them settled literally on the eve of trial the implications i suppose are that the law in uh, the civil arena anyway contains shades of gray and in a particularly compelling factual scenario like we had here where we have an individual whose blood alcohol content was so high and a fair inference that he arrived at the airport unintoxicated, the court felt that that gave rise to a triable issue of fact. And it's for that reason that the Dram Shop defendant's motions were denied. Could this be seen as an extension or expansion of Pennsylvania law? And hence the law of, of the other states uh, who have similar Dram Shop legislation Yes, this is a, as they say, hard cases make bad law. And this is an extreme situation in which the court was persuaded to pass on the opportunity to dismiss the claims and let a jury deal with them. So this was a plaintiff-friendly and claimant-friendly scenario. Now, the plaintiffs also needed to establish a relationship between prime flight and continental in this case. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yes. A little bit of background is in order here. Um, This case was filed on the second anniversary of the plaintiff's fall at the airport, which in Pennsylvania is the last day under our statute of limitations. Uh, So once the day of the, the, the complaint was filed passed, there could be no additional party named as a defendant by the plaintiff. As we understand the situation, the file came to be handled by plaintiff's counsel At basically the 11th hour, they sued the parties whom they had a reasonable belief were involved properly as defendants, and among the parties sued was Continental Airlines, but not the company that employed the Skycaps. Perhaps there was a thought that the Skycaps were, in fact, Continental Airlines employees. I can't speak to that, but I can say conclusively that the Skycap employer was not named. And, in fact, that is an outsourced independent contractor relationship. Uh, That's how it works in the airline industry for the most part. So plaintiffs found themselves, as evidence developed, with a primary defendant in the form of a skycap who works for someone who's not a party. That left plaintiff with no choice other than to try to graft that skycap onto Continental by way of agency principles. And that was uh, a very hard-fought aspect of the case where the jury was subjected to quite a bit of testimony concerning the elements and level of control that an airline, in this case Continental, has with respect to the conduct of its skycaps and who can be employed as a skycap and so forth. Ultimately, the jury was persuaded that there was an agency relationship between the skycap and Continental based on its verdict. What are the plaintiff's chances in an appeal? Well, I must be circumspect in my remarks because a motion for a new trial has been filed and is pending. I can note some public aspects, which are the the issues that they have raised. There are two issues on appeal, so to speak. The first issue relates to the manner in which the trial judge responded to questions that came back from the jury during its deliberation, and that is uh, an area in which the trial court is vested with sound discretion. So, quite frankly, it's a, a high hurdle that the plaintiffs have to clear in this case in order to demonstrate that the court abused its discretion in the manner in which it answered questions that were posed by the jury. And the second issue relates to the admission that was on file in this case on the part of the plaintiffs that the decedent was sober when he arrived at the airport. Uh, Interestingly, 
that was an admission that worked well with the model of the case as against the dram shop defendants. That is to say, if they can show that he was sober when he showed up, heavily intoxicated 50 minutes later, then there is a strong inferential presence in the case that he must have been drinking unless he happened to sneak into a broom closet with a bottle. He must have been drinking at one of the dram shops. That once the settlement with the dram shops occurred, literally on the eve of trial, at that point, the admission of sobriety no longer fit the bill. It actually was somewhat in the way of the plaintiff's remaining claims against Southwest Airlines and Continental, in which it was to their best interest to demonstrate that he was visibly intoxicated at an earlier point in time, basically as soon as he arrived at the airport. So the complaint or the challenge to the trial evidence, which is at the one of the two legs of their appeal, is that they should have been permitted to withdraw the admission of sobriety so as to conform to the evidence in the case. And the court did not, at trial, allow them to do that. And as a result, the admission of sobriety was read to the jury as evidence. And can you touch on the possible impact on the insurance industry in general and where you see the case or related issues going from here? Well, what I see here is a case in which a compelling set of facts basically washed over the dam of the law, uh, to coin a phrase, where we have settled the law of, with respect to dram shops that says that in the absence of evidence, one, that an individual was drinking at an establishment, and two, that the individual was visibly intoxicated, so that he appeared to be intoxicated, you don't have a claim against the dram shop. So again, traditional elements, you have to be intoxicated and visibly so, and served. And in this case, we, one, have no evidence that he was at any of these particular establishments, let alone that he appeared to be intoxicated. And there, there is actually case law that says that you, there has to be evidence that he appeared intoxicated and not simply that his blood alcohol content rendered him intoxicated. So we have kind of a new frontier against the dram shops, which simply sends the message that no matter how careful your legal research and reading of the cases there is a human element. There is a, uh, an element of drama that infuses lawsuits, and judges are not immune to that drama. And if a sufficiently compelling factual story, and I don't mean to dismiss the facts as untrue by calling them a story, but we are dramatists as trial lawyers. If a sufficiently compelling story can be presented to the court that appeals to common sense, it can, quite frankly, crash through the gates of settled law. And so what does that mean? That means that the tort environment remains very fluid and that it's all about the story. A good story can still break through the expectations or defeat the expectations of a simple academic reading of the case law. So that's the kind of risk that underwriters, I would think, need to bear in mind that it's not simply doing the difficult task of underwriting is not as simple as determining what is the statute in a given state and then working backwards from that, you really need to kind of see over the edges of the law and allow for, you know, the extraordinary case such as this one to defeat what would otherwise be kind of settled expectations. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jonathan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Jonathan Ziss from the Margolis Edelstein Law Firm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Special thanks to Brenda Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. 
If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast at ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision-makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 